Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. And welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting from two snug little shipping containers in lovely Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And we are the principals of Groundworks, Inc., where we design and build gardens all around New York City. And now that we've put most of our gardens to bed for the winter, we can engage in our other passion, which is talking about plants as our familiars and as food, fodder, and on this show as medicine. Today. Today. The plant kingdom has supplied most of our medicinal needs for almost all of human existence and continues to do so whether we realize it or not. From quinine from malaria to painkillers from willow bark to the sophisticated anti-cancer drugs coming from the taxes family. And the study of plants potential is as important as ever. So on today's show to introduce and enlighten us on the topic of ethnobotany, we have as our guest Dr. Ina Vanderbrook, Ph.D., who is the Ethnomedical Research Specialist at the Institute of Economic Botany at the New York Botanical Garden. Dr. Vanderbrook's projects include the investigation of traditional knowledge, beliefs, and practices related to immigrant health and health care, including the use of medicinal plants in several Latino communities in New York City, as well as the cultural beliefs about specific illnesses that are recognized by these communities, but not as such by mainstream medicine. Dr. Vanderbrook, who is originally from Belgium, speaks five languages, including German. I'm so impressed. <laughs> um, and has been featured on programs as diverse as the Martha Stewart Show and NOVA. She was also the lead researcher on a project funded by the Belgian government titled Medicinal Plant Exploration in the Andes and Amazon Regions of Bolivia. On that project, she conducted ethnographic and ethnobotanical research in a traditional farming community in the Andes and in indigenous communities in the Amazon in Bolivia. The results demonstrated that knowledge held by traditional healers about medicinal plants can also be high in an environment such as the Andes that is significantly affected by human activity and is less diverse as compared to the tropical rainforest. Welcome, Ina. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. I'm so glad you could join us. From the Bronx. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, let's talk about um, current medicines and, and, you know, sort of um, their botanical origin. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the key finds in the past years that, that um, you know, you're excited about and that can be traced back to, to plants. Well, we know that um, there are at least 119 drugs that are derived from plants, either directly or indirectly. And we know that uh, three-fourths of those, so 75%, I think that's about 90, 90 of these drugs, have been developed as a result uh, from ethnobotanical leads. So 
They were used in traditional medicine and then later uh, developed into drugs. Now, um, the question, what are the most uh, interesting new leads coming out? You yes. just mentioned Taxol, right? Yes. Well, Taxol has been developed about 20 years ago, and it's kind of the last black blockbuster um, isolated single compound that comes from a plant. But I'm particularly enthusiastic about a new medicine, and it's a crude extract from a plant that we all know. It's uh, made from the leaves of green tea. It's called virgin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's an ointment that is used um, for sexually transmitted uh, warts that are caused by the HPV virus. And I'm particularly enthusiastic about it because it's it's a mixture of plants. So it's a crude extract. It's not a single compound, hmm. and it's been FDA approved. Oh wow! So where in the world is this found? Sorry, where is this found? Yeah. It's made from the leaves of the green tea, the green, so green tea, tea that we, that we drink. Right, but but well, so that's easy to cultivate and common. So right, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Wow. Yes. So tell us about your work in Bolivia. And mm -hmm. what did you discover there about traditional medicines and healing practices that surprised you? Well, when I went to Bolivia, that was in 2000, now 10 years ago uh, already, um, I first started working in a community of uh, Quechua-speaking farmers in the Andes. And I had planned my research to first go to the Andes Mountains and work there because I was thinking the holy grail of knowledge about medicinal plants and traditional medicine is in the Amazon, and that's right. where I'm going to find most of the interesting information. But actually, it turned out the other way around. It were the people in the Andes community who knew more medicinal plants and knew their plants better than the people from the Amazon. Oh, interesting. So were you living with, with a family, and they were kind of teaching you their their folk ways or you were you were obviously working with a community how did you get connected with the community well in the year before in 1999 through the belgian development corporation and in collaboration with a local university there there i got in touch through the students working at the university with that uh, community of farmers because it's true it's not that you can just uh go on a trip and say, hi, I'm an ethnobotanist right. and I'm coming to study your, your medicinal plant knowledge. Right. So it's all contacts that you have, local contacts, and then you go to the community. And um, in my case, um, there was a group of eight traditional healers working in that um, Quechua community in the Andes, and I presented my research ideas and, and proposal to them, and it was like defending uh, a, a grant proposal. Yeah. <laughs> so it, they were actually, it, it took place in a local church, and they were very carefully listening to what I had to say, and then they went outside and then they de deliberated about it. They were thinking uh, whether they wanted to participate and what under which conditions they wanted to t participate right. and they came back and they told me yes we're interested to work together with you 
So then also through other contacts with a local NGO, they took me to the community. I, in the end, is I stayed uh, in a primary health care service mm. because most of the huts that people live in have a thatched roof and there are the box, the kissing box that uh, transmit um, uh, diseases. So it's kind of 80% of the people was, was infected with uh, uh, that kissing buck. So it, it was uh, safer for me to stay in the kissing buck parasite. Sorry. It was safer for me to stay in uh, the primary health care service. Oh, yes. You okay. didn't You didn't want to be part of the uh, experiment and protocol for yourself. <laughs> well, but in the, in the Amazon, um, I did stay with the people in their uh, huts. Right. Well, what what were some of the um, things that you discovered? Like, which plants were you working with, and what discoveries did you make from 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 their knowledge? Well, we conducted a general ethnobotanical survey. That means um, you go out on field trips with them, and you collect plants, you dry them, and you press them, so you can identify their botanical name because local people know their local names in their own language or in Spanish but if you go to another country where the same plant is growing that plant may have a different name so then you don't know which plant you're talking about so that's where the botanists in the ethnobotanists come in to identify that plant so we did a general survey then based on the plants that we collected, we would ask each of the eight healers um, what what they use the plant for, what kind of illnesses. And so then you get a large database um, because people know more than one uh, health condition they use a plant for. So you get this large information and from that information, my students and I made a guidebook uh, written in Spanish to give back that knowledge to the community because it's oral knowledge. Well, oh, right. It's not yeah. written down. So right. that way it, it gets preserved. Uh-huh. And that leads to the question, you know, kind of obvious question, who does the knowledge belong to? I, you know, I can understand the, the local people being a little bit hesitant of just allowing anybody to come in and sharing their knowledge and benefiting. I mean, you know, different groups are going to be benefiting from that knowledge. What are they going to get out of it, you know? That's true, and that's a very valid concern. And ethnobotanists are very aware and very sensitive to the issue of intellectual property rights. Who does that knowledge belong to? Well, my answer is uh, the knowledge belongs to the people, and you have to be very careful what you do with it. Uh Now, um, that's also why I like to give a quantitative twist to my research, not just publish uh, names and uses of plants, but um, show how knowledge is distributed in the community, uh, who knows what and why. And then you don't necessarily have to publish uh, these names uh, and plants. We did publish it in a local publication, and they were co-authors on it. Uh-huh. Uh, on my research paper, people are also co-authors. So we're very careful, and we work out together with them the terms of our collaboration. Right. 
Um, how did you personally get involved in this field? Because I know it's fascinating, and I'm sure lots of our listeners wish that they could have your life. You get to travel, right. meet all these great people, work with plants. Everyone's seen the movie Medicine Man, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Right, right. But I have to also say, and then it, it's fantastic to see it on TV, on National Geographic right. Channel or something, but when you're there, like, for instance, in the rainforest, uh, I'm, I'm very careful about, you know, which student goes with me because not everybody is fit to live there you get bitten all over i have yeah. students crying and 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 if you're there for three weeks you crave um mayonnaise you crave a hot shower yeah. you know it, it, it's very hard but um it's also very fascinating, and it, they're wonderful people to work with, and it's a privilege to work with them. Right. So, no, actually, in my previous life, um, I was uh, doing neuropsychopharmacology. I was working in the lab, and I was working on animal models of um, psychological conditions. But then I got my PhD and I thought, this is not what I want to do. I want to do something that is relevant and combine my uh, background in biology with um, my PhD training in medical sciences and do something that makes a difference. And these people, um, they they. They only have primary health care, and sometimes they don't even have that. The communities in the rainforest only depend on plants for their health care. Right. So right. it is relevant, um, and it's knowledge that is disappearing. We all know what the state of our forest is like um, around the globe, and um, these people are, all, are also having difficulties maintaining their culture. So we need to do something there, and I felt like I could be of benefit. Right. And how did you, if you could talk for a second about the New York Botanic Gardens program, because I know that, that that's actually an amazing place that doesn't get a lot of publicity um, for, for the department that you're in. Could you talk a little bit um, about their program? Well, it's true. The New York Botanical Garden, um, the science department, it's very exciting to be there. We have great programs that focus on conservation uh, of biodiversity. We have our taxonomists who specialize in identifying plants, and it's really a career uh, in and by itself. And then here in the institute where I work, the Institute of Economic Botany, uh, we specifically uh, work, study the relationships between uh, people and plants. Right. My, my colleagues, for example, work in Micronesia. We're also focusing on healthcare. There are other researchers that are focusing on uh, community-based conservation. So, so we're, we're really doing cutting-edge research into biodiversity, conservation, primary healthcare. And I love that it comes from the plant end, which I think is very important, versus the medical research end. You know, um, it's really nice that it starts with the plants and that you all offer, NYBG offers such a long history of that sort of plant exploration and uh, research. That, that is correct. It's yeah. not just a beautiful park. That's what we want to remind our listeners. You know, right. it is a beautiful park, but it's, they're doing much more than that there. Right. So right. let's talk a little bit about your, um, I found it really interesting, your work in Cuba, um, mm-hmm. helping to develop um, sustainable methods of pest and disease control on their farms. Tell us what's going on there. 
So in Cuba, we started working, and that, that's um, research that was uh, funded by the Belgian Development Corporation, um, working together with universities uh, over there to develop um, biological uh, products that could uh, help in uh, deterring pests and, and plant diseases. And that was because of the embargo. Cuba has uh, a hard time to acquiring uh, outside uh, pharmaceuticals. And um, we started working there and, and also on the basis of traditional knowledge, what do people know about, um, you know, having safe crops and how can we develop that into a product? Interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting how that embargo has kind of forced them to to come up with more creative, you know, solutions Correct. to dealing yeah. with that. And then perhaps, uh, you know, that, that knowledge can be spread beyond their borders, you know, because we certainly need help on this. Well, this, you, uh, you know, know, remember, Cuba is a, is a country that doesn't offer too many Internet cafes. So <laughs> it's, you know, communication in Cuba is is really an issue. So it's amazing that, that they were so receptive to, uh, to welcome you. Yes, that's you know? true. So, well, we have to take a break. If you'll uh, hang with us, Ina, we are going to be back in a few minutes. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. talking today you're listening to we dig plants on heritage radio network we're talking today to dr vanderbrook from new york botanic garden and we're talking about the discussion of plants in medicine and her work um, as an ethnobotanist so um one of the more fascinating uh projects when 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 reading about your work was your work with the traditional healers and the medicinal or medical students, and trying to help them understand each other. How did that develop? Well, that developed from a 2005 study here um, on Dominican ethnomedicine that was uh, financed by the National Institutes of Health, uh, National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And um, during that project, we discovered that uh, 
80% of the people uh, believe that there were health conditions that a medical doctor does not understand or cannot cure, and that's why they're using herbal remedies for them. Uh We thought that was uh, an amazing result. And um, then talking to doctors, they also told us that they were increasingly realizing that uh, the, the underserved communities they're working with are not necessarily following up on their prescription. So people might go to a hospital to know what what kind of disease they have, get a prescription, but then go out uh, out of the hospital and start using their herbal remedies, or they go to botanicas um, in New York City. These are kind kind of uh, community-based shops that sell herbal remedies and other products for spiritual them. and religious uh, and physical yeah. well-being. It's really fun to, to visit a botanica. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been there? Oh yes, yes, <laughs> several times. Just you know, the candles. Out of, out I just get the candles and the candles. <laughs> but I mean that you know that's the superficial element of it. But it's the the information that that can be found in them is is fascinating, and that's what you spend your life putting together. Well, tell me an example of a folk illness, for example, that the doctor wouldn't believe if you if you can, you know. Yes. Well, there are several. Um, right now, we are um, investigating 15 folk illnesses, and we are looking at how um, Dominicans, Mexicans, and Puerto Ricans categorize them, what they think are the symptoms, what causes them, and how they should be treated for each of these 15 uh, folk illnesses. And uh, one of them is the evil eye, or mal de ojo, um, that is known all over the world. Right. Another one is empacho. Sorry? Yes. yes. No, yes. I'm agreeing with you. Yes. 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 So another one is empacho, that's kind of a gastrointestinal blockade. Now, characteristic about these folk illnesses is that um, they may or may not be limited to a certain culture. In the case of the evil eye, it's, it's known all over the world. But other illnesses are more specific to a certain culture, and there often is not a one-on-one correlation with a biomedical disease. So empacho can be different conditions, but People, local people recognize it as empacho. And because they think a medical doctor does not understand it or cannot cure it, they want to use their herbal remedies. So what, what is empacho then? What would be like the symptoms of it? Um, it's, it can be an indigestion, but it can okay. be more serious as well. Um, it's often children that are considered empachado. Um, so then they have diarrhea, or they're crying a lot, uh, or they're vomiting. Uh-huh. And um, one of the ways to treat it, uh, it's what, they, what people call jalar el cuero, means to pull the back, the skin on the back uh, three times. It, it's often an uneven number of times. And then they give them to drink a tea of uh, the two oreganos, uh-huh. uh, um, the oregano that we know in, 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 in our kitchen. It's not the Mediterranean oregano, though. It's another species. And there is the broad-leafed oregano, the Cuban oregano. The Cuban, right? Yes. Yep. So, well, sorry, Carmen. I'm, I'm, just, I'm fascinated with the evil eye. <laughs> yes, I was going to admit. <laughs> let's talk about the evil eye for a second. Yes. Because to me, that's kind of a psychological... Well, I have something kind of personal to share about that. Uh, you know, my grandmother, I'm of Italian descent. And I was born in Italy. And my grandmother was a healer. And anytime I went there, 
and and I wasn't feeling well when I first got there. She would say, "You have malocchio. You have the evil eye." And she would do these ritual healing things on me, which involved olive oil and various other things. Um, and and I would say, "No, I just have you know, I have jet lag, Grandma. I I don't have the evil yeah. eye. You know, I just a little got melatonin. Off a I'll be fine." No, no, you definitely have the evil eye. She would inspect me and have to immediately, um, you know, cure me of it. <laughs> Right. So I, I can relate to that evil eye aspect. So, yeah, t- can you tell us a little bit about what those, like, kind of Western symptoms would be then? Well, the evil eye can be very light. I suspect that in your case it was pretty light. But in children, because it often happens in children, the evil eye can even lead to convulsions and death according to people's uh, description of the symptoms. So... What is and, and I want to stress that because often um, we say that it's um, psychological illnesses, but it's also known from the literature that they're associated with increased morbidity and mortality, so increased disease and increased uh, death. So, so they're really worth to investigate. Uh-huh. And um, among the symptoms are, again, crying, sleeplessness. These are the more innocent ones, but the convulsions, for example, right. um, can be pretty serious. Um, one eye or an arm or a leg can be bigger than another, is what people say. Uh-huh. Um, so it's fascinating. There's a, this whole set of symptoms, and you can't say, oh, the evil eye is a disease, and it's this disease. Right. But you also cannot say it's just psychological if... if there can be convulsions. Right, exactly. Because there are fi- there are physical ramifications of psychological disorders, so it really is more a, a culmination of several effects. So they see the symptoms and then they determine if it's evil eye or not, right? Right. And and what is also interesting is that uh, often people say, so we I brought my child to the doctor and the doctor couldn't diagnose anything, so that that's why it must be the evil eye. Now, um, Dominicans, for example, uh, often say it, it's that one of your neighbors came visiting you or and said to your child, what a beautiful child, but forgot to add, God bless the child. So that that's one of the uh, presumed causes of the evil eye. That is so amazing, Ine, because that is exactly the same tradition in Italy, in southern Italy where I'm from. If somebody compliments you, especially a child, that is one of the ways that it can cause the evil eye and the symptoms associated with it. Right. So that means also that as a doctor, you have to know that. So if you're a pediatrician, you have to know that you have to be careful uh, how to compliment the child, for right. example. Right. Because, because everybody, it can be uh, intentionally transmitted, but it can also be unintentionally transmitted. This is, this is completely fascinating to me um, <laughs> as a, you know, American born in the States and uh, w- without any of these kind of cultural heritage um, Right. But you know what's very interesting? Among first-generation Dominicans, uh-huh. from our study, um, we know that one in two people who came from a city in the Dominican uh, Republic, uh, sorry, who came from the countryside in the Dominican Republic, believes in the evil eye. And one in four people coming from a city believes in it. So it's, it's not just that one or two people believe in it. Uh, the majority of the population believes that the evil eye exists. And it's something that people are uh, hesitant to talk with their doctors about. Right, right. 
So we tried to fill in that gap. Uh-huh. So from our research, uh, our results, uh, we develop uh, PowerPoint presentations and training sessions that we bring to medical schools here in New York City. We work together with Albert Einstein College of Medicine, uh, Columbia University Medical Center, some community clinics for the uninsured, and so on. Right, right. And you've also developed some ethnobotanical trials for tourists particularly in the Dominican Republic. That certainly made us want to go. <laughs> but how, can you explain a little bit about that project? Well, um, one summer, the Minister of the Environment, uh, the former Minister of the Environment, Jaime David Fernandez Mirabal from the Dominican Republic, um, came to visit the New York Botanical Garden. And I was among uh, the people who greeted him, and, and he we started talking about the kind of research that I do, and it's working with the Dominican community. And he was so uh, happy about that that he said, well, yes, um, if you guys are doing that kind of research in New York, you have to come over and we have to identify ethnobotanical trails in uh, a biodiversity area that I have just uh, declared as a, as a protected area. So we can bring the knowledge of the people and, and connect it to biodiversity as it should and uh, he gave us uh, that forum to, to develop the trails and, and uh, you know, show that cultural heritage of Dominicans. It's very rich. It's incredibly rich. You know, when, when uh, I, I came over and worked at the New York Botanical Garden just to work in the city with Dominican immigrants, I thought, you know, it's a city. It's, it's a metropolis. What kind of plans am I going to find there? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to be done with my research in, Quickly, in three right. months. Yeah, exactly. But now it's seven years later, and I'm still here, and there's still so much knowledge that is waiting to be discovered. Yeah. Well, yeah. well you know, it's very interesting. Uh, being a first-generation American, you know, what what you take with you and what you keep and what you discard as you, you know, be, as you come to a new country. Can you tell us what, what happens when the immigrants' traditional healing practice sort of intersects with modern medicine a little bit more? I mean, is there a lot of distrust of doctors? Are they, you know, um, just, you know, wanting to stay with their with, with what they know? With their focus. Or are they able to integrate it a little bit? You mean from the doctor's side or from the patient's side? From the patient's side, I was thinking. Well, both, actually. Yeah. That's yeah. a good question. Well, um, it, it can be anything. You know, the majority of, of Dominicans, we interviewed 175 Dominicans here in New York City, and um, many people would say um, when my my disease is not too serious, um, I I stick with my medicinal plants because they're my culture. I have faith in them. It's, it's, these are plants, and plants are not chemical, and I prefer that. Right, right. Um, but there are also people who told us, no, you know, medicinal plants and traditional medicine is something that is from the past. And we're here in New York City, and doctors know modern medicine, and that's what we should do. And there, then there are people that combine both at the same time, or sometimes one after the other. Right. So you have, you have a lot of uh, possibilities uh, there. Uh, so, so I'd say um, distrust, yes and no. Well, I know a lot of, um, I know a lot of hospitals are actually turning um, to alternative medicine as as kind of a supplement to the Western 
to the Western practices, which I think is a really great, um, you know, mission for for hospitals since since we are dealing with a huge community here in New York of, mm-hmm. of very varied people. Um, so it really is amazing. My father went through Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, with lung cancer, and at the same time, he was having acupun- acupressure and acupuncture um, for the pain. For the pain, mm-hmm. and it was really good. And he's really into it now. And that's you know that was something he probably wouldn't have have um, gone through if if he you know didn't get this illness. So mm-hmm. that was that was amazing. So, so are you finding in your work and your experience? Are you finding that doctors are some of the doctors are receptive uh, to working complementarily with the with you know native medicines and plants? Well, in our focus, we are we're in our project. We're focusing on on you know improving the dialogue between okay. doctor and patients. I think it starts there, and then it can um, evolve in something that. Uh, integrates both types of medicine, but but we're still in the stage that we are um, bringing this information to uh, medical students, residents, and practicing physicians, and 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 then we, for example, have a um, a role play exercise in which we present the case, like a mother thinks her child has the evil eye, um, doesn't want to disclose that information to you as a doctor. How are you going to ask her? non-judgmental questions right. uh, to, to get her to uh, tell you how she thinks her child should be treated and, and in that way to have better treatment um, of serve better health care for minority communities. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What's the one plant, Ina, that, that has most um, or been most interesting to you in its healing properties that you found in your research? Oh, there are many plants that I would be interested in, but if I just look at my research with the Dominican community, uh-huh. their number one plant, and it, they call it Cure It All, is aloe vera. Okay. Aloe vera. It's, uh, it's used so for so many different things. Uh, it's used for asthma, upper respiratory tract infections, wounds, burns, diabetes, uh, slimming, skin problems, name it, and you have it. Uh, you, you, you can use it, you, you can use aloe vera for it. Yeah. And, and also to bring good luck. So I, I kind of, you know, I'm amazed by a plant that sticks out so much as being um, so widely appreciated. Have you personally um, used any of these kind of folkloric methods in in lieu of Western medicine? I have. Uh Um, You know, as a scientist, I I always try to, I mean, I'm not a herbalist, right? Right. Um, But Dominicans, for example, have a really nice mixture of food plants um, that they make a sort of uh, jarabe that's uh, a cough syrup from uh-huh. that I've used. So you cut an onion, you add uh, radish, you add watercress, some ginger, uh, some apples, all raw, and then you add honey. You put it in the fridge and you wait till the honey gets the juices out of your foods. And then you use that as a cough syrup. 
and and these are because they're food plants. I right. like it. Yeah. I like to try it, and uh, it actually is better, I think, than uh, in a pharmaceutical medicine. Yeah, you know, if you yeah. can make it at home, it's nice. Well, absolutely. It's it's the old adage that you know, um, when I was a, a kid in the seventies, I I always had sinus mm-hmm. issues. And my doctor said to me very smartly in like 1972, just snort some salt water and you'll be fine. You know, clean your nose out. And there I was last night, you know, doing my little saline wash, thinking, wow, who knew that like salt water, which now you can buy, you know, it takes up three shelves in Dwayne Reed. (laughs) Like, you know, you can't just simple. You can't just make it yourself. You got to buy a product. But but it really is the simple most best you know and i can relate to that um as a child you know what is the the most important liquid medicine for italians well it comes from the grape ina of course you know (laughs) (laughs) so my parents would boil wine Uh boil it down a homemade wine of course until it was a thick syrup and that's what they um gave us as children when we had colds yeah, we had this, this very thick wine syrup. They might add a little bit of sugar, but usually boiling it down kind of made it syrupy and a little sweeter. And that took care of the sore throat, the yeah. cough. It kind of mildly the bad attitude. Yes, the bad <laughs> <laughs> it, it relaxed you slightly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think it was slept for a while. <laughs> yeah, I think it was medicinal for the parents yeah. as well. <laughs> All right. Well, we have we have time for one more question, um, Ina. You participated in the Venice Biennale in 2009. That seems like a surprising venue for somebody with your background. How did you get involved and what was that all about? Well, that's actually going back to my past. My When I was uh, 12, 13 years old, my art teacher uh, in school, he... Uh, you know, has always been interested in plants, and he's been working for years on, you know, incorporating aspects, social and biological aspects in his research. His name is Jeff Gase, and he's, he's considered a, a big European artist. And uh, he was selected by the Belgian king to present his work uh, at the Venice Biennale. And because he was my art teacher, and my parents had run into him in at the supermarket because they live in the same town. And, of course, my mother, you know how mothers are, yeah. said, you know, my daughter is in New York City, and she's working at the New York Botanical Garden. And he said, oh, how fantastic. I have to get in touch with her. So he's a conceptual artist. So he... And he, he collaborates with people from different disciplines. Uh-huh. So he, he thinks about the idea, and he gave me the idea. He gave me a task um, in New York City uh, in a number of square kilometers from your home, from where you live, go out and collect. 12 weeds that uh-huh. have medicinal value with the idea, a concept of if a homeless person in New York City has a toothache, what kind of a plant could he find in his surroundings that could help him? Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> so I, I made collections of plants like I always do. I tried them, pressed them, and added ethnobotanical information on the medicinal uses of these plants. Uh-huh. And... Um, that was part of the Venice Biennale exhibit. So he gave me as an ethnobotanist a forum to bring my work to a wider audience, which is why I did it. Not right. because I thought all of a sudden, oh, my God, I'm an artist. No, right. But, um, right. you know, as a researcher to, to develop these kind of interdisciplinary collaborations, it's, it's 
it's very exciting. It is. It's great. And that's what makes New York Botanic Garden and New York City so alive is, is all the interdisciplinary connections and the communities and the people that have made this city what it is. So it's, um, it's a great wrap-up for you personally and, and uh, for our show today, unfortunately, because we are out of time. Thank you, Ina, so much for being with us. Hopefully we can have you on again. And I want to know what, the, what, what was the remedy for the toothache? Oh, within your a plant used for toothache. Yeah, um, that was just the idea. So it okay. it, it was just <laughs> okay. any any weed that I could find okay. and what the medicinal uses okay. of that weed are. Got the it. toothache was just an example. Okay, so I'm not going to be going and picking <laughs> artemisia and rubbing it on my teeth. I didn't find something. one for toothache actually. <laughs> okay, well thank you, thank yeah. you for being on the show. Thanks, Thanks for, listening. for having me. You're welcome. Thank you, Ina. Thanks for listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, the show is going to be available for listening via archive at heritageradionetwork.com and also via podcast. We'll be posting a link to the New York Botanic Garden website on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants. Thanks to Jack Inslee for producing and to Carlos Aguero for engineering. See you next week. This is a message from Sea to Table. Can the fish come back to South Street? On December 18th, the New Amsterdam Market will pay homage to the Old Fulton Fish Market by including a special section dedicated to the fisheries of the Northeast and New England with Sea to Table. Sea to Table partners with fishermen in the recovering fisheries of the Northeast. Their transparent model, delivering fish direct from docks to chefs across America, supports the traditional fisheries that are crucial to the survival of our working waterfronts. For the first time, Sea to Table will join the market to offer fresh fish direct from independent Northeast fishermen. The collaboration of Sea to Table with New Amsterdam will take us back in time for a day to the era when fishmongers dominated Lower Manhattan. So stop by the New Amsterdam market at Peck Slip and South Street in Manhattan on December 18th and support your local fishermen and fisheries. For more information on Sea to Table, visit www.c2table.com. That's C-S-E-A, the number two, table.com. The following is a message from Jones Family Farms. Looking for that perfect Christmas tree this season? What about the perfect wine to go with your holiday dinner? Look no further than Jones Family Farm, a 400-acre working farm in Connecticut. Jones Family Farms is as passionate about education as it is about farming. Whether you're picking fresh strawberries or exploring local wines, we hope you're inspired to learn more about Connecticut farming. For more information, visit www.jonesfamilyfarms.com.